All right, guys, American Contingency, we are here with uh, Kawa, former Special Forces Green Beret. I know I'm, I'm privy to Green Berets on the show, um, but owns a tactical firearms and instruction company. Uh, has been a good buddy of me, of mine, going back and forth. We've, we've talked over years, yeah. just uh, supporting each other throughout the years. Uh, thanks for taking the time to come out, man. I appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. There's a ton of stuff that I want to talk to you about because I don't know if it's the lack of courage, um, people not wanting to mess up the reputation. I don't know what it is, but I see all these people who I thought because they always like the virtue signal. They're on the right side of history. And then all the stuff transpired and they're silent. They're not saying a word. <laughs> and I know, man, I can't even think of many examples you know, versus outspoken people already. We weren't very outspoken about anything except our own space and our own industry. But when this stuff kicked off, all the, uh, you know, the craziness across the country, including the pandemic, including Antifa, the riots, the protests, the violent protest, you stood up and said, I'm, I'm going to say something about it. Was that a conscious decision for you? Did you say, did you say like, I don't care. It's not about business. It's not about uh, reputation. I'm going to stand for my truth. How did that kind of unfold? Uh, so, you know, like you said, before all this happened, we were staying in our lane in our community. And, uh, you know, and even then I looked at guys like you, myself, plenty of others that were like leaders in that aspect. Uh, but like when all this stuff happened, I felt like a big, uh, change in shifting gears or whatever should have, you know, occurred, um, at least with people like yourself and, and myself. And, and you're right, there isn't many ex other examples. Of that. But I think what that goes back to, at least for me, was just kind of like those leadership traits that were instilled in us a long time ago when we mm. first joined, you know, like I was in the Marine Corps prior to being in the Army. And one of the one of the biggest things the Marine Corps is known for is taking a PFC and a private and teaching him leadership from like day one, you know? Uh, and we take that very seriously. And so that always stuck with me. And I was like, if I'm in a leadership position, I have a voice, why not use it? Whether mm. I'm just a fire team leader to three other guys, or, you know, in this case, um, you know, I have a, a bigger platform or, or multiple platforms really at this point. So why not use it? If not me, then who else? And, and when I saw you posting about it, and, uh, you know, I, I always kind of posted about it too, but I didn't have another page to like really get after it. Like you did, you know what I mean? I just had my one page and I was like, do I veer off track with my page? Because my page is really more about firearms, education, safety, and instruction mm. and tactics. But I, like, how far do I veer off this page? And those thoughts occur to me, like, am I going to lose people or am I going to gain people? Like, but at some point I made a decision where I said, you know what? even if it's just me and Mike in this case, or maybe like two other guys, like somebody has to speak up, you know, and I'm going to catch some flag for sure. And I have, I've caught a lot of heat from people that are like, you should stay in your lane and this and that's like, this is my lane. And in fact, this is your lane as well. Mm. You know, if we talk about the principle, the core principles that are being violated, that are, that are being addressed, the concern, the, the, the principal concerns that we're looking at this, this is everybody's lane. You know, so I just decided to speak up, man. And I, I didn't know how far I was going to take it or how long I was going to go with it. But the more I did it, the more I felt like, um, and, and really it was the feedback I was getting from people that 
really made me keep going. And I was like, you know what? You know, when people were telling me and DMing me and writing me these long, like two, three paragraphs talking about, dude, thank you so much for speaking up. Mm. You know, we need more people like you to speak up. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing the right thing. So, um, so there was definitely some concern within myself, like, man, I don't know if I should be talking about this stuff, you know, especially the way social media is now with trying to suppress us, you know, not just the gun community in general, but now they're trying to suppress anything that has to do anything that's opposite of their agenda, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, am I going to take my, you know, I might get my page get taken, you know, my, my page might get taken down. Um, but I just rolled with it, man. And, and yes, I stood up another page to like really get after it. But, you know, I still tend to post on, on my main page because obviously I have the biggest reach there. And there are some things that I think aren't too like political or aren't too like deep into a, one-sided on a, on a topic that I think I can get some good like dialogue from people and just build like a, a forum where people can talk. Mm. So, but that's yeah. where it comes from, man. Those leadership traits and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think, you, you know, one of the things that I thought about too is it, it's a, a business assessment, right? Cause our livelihood, I, I remember when we started our pages, there wasn't a lot of people no. from our backgrounds that had pages that were being uh, influential in no, the space. Right. All. In fact, I can't even name, and I can only name a handful of special forces guys that actually have a voice. I mean, there's guys who have pages, obviously, but that gained traction, we had gained traction. And so it was, I remember it being a conscious decision for me too. Am I going to commit to, to talking about this? And the first time that I did it was when everybody was doing Blackout Tuesday. And, and, I, I, the, the following or no, the same day, cause I saw friends of mine posting blackout Tuesday and I understood the black lives matter movement, right? I understood that there was a lot of people who were African-American that were white who had no idea what they were getting behind. And when I started, and this is, this is long ago, this is like a year ago. I, I actually dug deep into the Marxist values of black lives matter and their overall intent, their affiliation with murders, um, uh, who they thought were freedom fighters and the fact that they wanted to systematically destroy what they saw as system, systemic racism, which is the fabric of our, our, our being essentially right. as a country. And so when I saw that, I said, I did a post and I said, all lives matter. And I posted an American flag because I think segregating any racial, ethnic, religious group for the sake of diversifying a conversation or an agenda to bring people together is a bad tactic. And so I said, listen, all lives matter to me, not just black lives matter, but all lives matter all the time. That's the conversation. And I I simply put it that way. And I lost a lot of followers, but then I gained a lot of followers because everybody was like, thank God somebody's speaking up. And the DMS I got were like, I wanted to say something, Mm. but I can't because I work for Oracle or I work for, you know, this organization who won't allow me to voice my opinion because they'll shut me down or fire me. Yeah. And then when I saw you posting, you know, the, the same sentiment, especially in the realm of security, I went, man, like it felt good. Cause I'm like, we are doing this together. And, and it's weird, but I was like, okay, this is not just me digging this by myself. There's other people thinking it. Yeah, no, uh, honestly, so you you brought up, the reason I smiled because you brought up that that Blackout Tuesday. And, uh, of course, everybody saw that, you know. 
And, uh, and I gotta say, man, I gotta be honest. Like when you posted that American flag, I was like, I'm posting something, you know, it was me. See, it wasn't necessarily like, I knew that I was going to get involved at some point. Cause I just, cause like when you look at it and you look at exactly what you said, when, and when an ethnic group, um, isolates themselves mm. and uses that isolation as a, as a, as a way to amplify their message or, or get their point across that never works out well. Just like you said, you know, if they would have just started out with all lives matter in the first place, you would have had, uh, people of all walks of life, Asians, Hispanics, white people of whoever holding up signs and pictures of this, the people that those injustices mm. also happen to. But when you isolate yourselves and then you say, no, black lives matter now, mm-hmm. nobody wants to join that. I'm sorry. Like you're not, I'm not, I want to support your message. But when you isolate yourselves that way and you say, and then on top of that, you say, well, all lives matter is just a counter argument. <laughs> It's an anti-racist. Me, you you couldn't push me away quick enough yeah. with that. Yeah. But yeah, that's I think that's about the same time I started mm-hmm. posting myself. Yeah. Is, is I saw the whole blackout thing, which I thought was just ridiculous. Yeah. And then I saw you post that American flag. I think I saw somebody else post, and that was it. I was like, you know what? I'm getting in this because it's time. What so. What have you seen? You know, let's first off tell tell people about your background because you have a, a unique background, and I say unique in, in the fact that you're a conservative value person with an ethnic background who served in a special operations capacity. Um, you have religious diversity. You have all these things like me, which, which is weird because I feel like the scariest thing for divisive fringe elements is a multicultured conservative. Right. Somebody who has value, whether that's my, my value didn't come from the Republican Party. My value came from the military. Right. It came from a good upbringing with a good father and a good mother um, based in uh, military core values. Where, where, where's your where's your family culturally from? What is your story? How did you come to be who you are today? Uh, so I think most people know that, um, you know, my family's from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So I'm Afghan. My father and mother, both Afghan. We were, my family's actually from Kabul. That's where they've lived for God knows how long. But, you know, I was born in 78. Uh, My sister, she was three years younger than me. The Russians invaded in 79. I think by the time it got really ugly in Kabul, it was like later 79, 80. Um, And then, you know, we were obviously, I'm assuming that everybody was kind of just playing it out to see how long it's going to last. But a lot of people ended up leaving. You know, a lot of Afghans went to Iran. A lot of Afghans went to Pakistan, India, uh, and everybody just booked. But like, because we had so much, you know, my my dad's side was all military. My mom's side, they were all bankers, you know, so we couldn't just up and leave. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is that on my dad's side, a lot of the guys that were in the army at the time, uh, because there was such a, a, so much dissension within the Afghan military between the Afghan Communist Party and, and, and uh, the, the, you know, the normal kind of, I guess, the, well, the non-communist, I should say, that be, a lot of, there was dissension. And so, like, my grandfather and my father, they went AWOL, you mm-hmm. know, and they started, they started fighting the Russians with the Mujahideen. You know, and you know who those guys are, the freedom yeah. fighters. Yeah, right? yeah. So they started fighting the Russians that way. Um, it wasn't until my father got killed in, in some firefight somewhere 
that my family was like, you know what, we're getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Like we're leaving now. Cause I think we had the plans to leave anyway, but after my father got killed, that was it. Like we were packed up and ready to go. And at that point it's crazy because my grandfather has six sons, four daughters, and then two of his daughters have kids. My mom with myself and my newborn sister. And then, and then my aunt with her three kids. And he had to make several trips back through back and back and forth from Afghanistan to Pakistan and India to get us out of there. Wow. So he had to use his money and his military connections on my father's side to get us through checkpoints. You know, the military checkpoints were fine, but like when we got to the Mujahideen checkpoints, they looked at my grandfather because he was like clean cut, three piece suit, you know, and like they looked at him, they thought that because he's clean shaven, he's a communist. Wow. And so they, my mom told me a story where they drug him out of the bus, put him on his knees, put an AK to his head, and uh, he had to prove that he wasn't part of the Communist Party. Wow. And he had to sit there. And meanwhile, the, and I kind of, I, I, I got ahead of myself, the military checkpoints, we had to hide my two uncles that were 15 and, 15 and older. Um, the rest were out already. But my two uncles, the youngest ones, were 15. At the time, if you were 15, you had to join the Afghan military for two years. So my grandfather was like, I'm not leaving my sons here. So they're sitting in the back of a bus under rice bags, hidden. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so these kind of these are the kind of stories that it took my grandfather four trips to get all his kids and grandkids out of Afghanistan. Um, and then we moved to the U.S. and my oldest uncle was a foreign exchange student here. I think he was going to UCLA or Berkeley or something like that. But we ended up moving into the states. And um, you know, as as young as I as young as I could I could remember, I remember the very first memory I have of the U, of the U.S. was my family at a Goodwill somewhere. And the Goodwill was handing us blankets and sheets and wow. pillowcases. Was that in California? And no, that was actually in Nebraska of all wow. places. And I don't know why we went there. But uh, that was my very first memory of the U.S., man. I, like, I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was four. I don't know. But, you know, we came we came from money in Afghanistan. I mean, we weren't, like, super rich. But, like, my I remember my grandfather's stories. We were, like, we were only one of two families that had, like, two cars and, like, this huge, like, fruit vineyard and, and whatever. I was, like, okay, cool, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, I don't know what that means, you know. But, but uh, to come to the U.S. and to see how we were accepted by this country – and then how our quality of life improved dramatically, at least in my eyes. Uh, you know, growing up, you know, I remember when I was 10, 11, 12, I had so much gratitude for this country. I was like, I, has, I was so grateful to see my mom not having to like hide her face to go to the store. My uncles were doing whatever they wanted. Like everybody, we, were we, were, we had such a good life. You know what I mean? Like our family was tight. And uh, I grew up that way and... I, I would always hear the stories of Afghanistan, of this and that, and like how the quality of life was good until the Russians invaded. And then, you know, and I was just like, man, that's so insane that if I would have grew up in Afghanistan, I could have either been like a Mujahideen, I could have been the Taliban, I could have been who the fuck knows, man, you know? I remember seeing pictures of um, Afghanistan in the 70s. Yeah. And people were driving convertible Mustangs. Yeah. And no women were covered. No. And... And it was a super progressive society. And that Afghan-Russian war blasted 
th- that whole entire country back into the back Stone, Stone Ages. Ages. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Afghanistan, I have pictures of my grandfather, my mom, my mom, her hair done, makeup, short skirt, like really nice. Wow. Like it's a scene out of 1950s America. Yeah. You know, my grandfather's in a three piece suit, cigar in one hand. And I'm assuming he had a fucking whiskey in the other hand. Yeah. And he's standing with his other buddies in an office. Like, I mean, I was like, what? This is so insane to see that. And to see the Afghanistan that it is today or for wow. the last 20 years. Wow. But they got, I mean, yeah, man, it got blown back to the Stone Ages. You know, that plus the Civil War and then, of course, the Taliban, Northern Alliance, all that. It was just insane yeah. to see how it is. What, what was your commitment to the military? How did, how did that, I have to imagine that you, when you have pride, like I, we have similar stories, mine from Korea, yours from Afghanistan. But I, I want to believe that your family when you raised your hand and said, Hey, I'm going to serve. It's like an obligation to you. Cause I grew up playing soldier and I was like, I have to serve my country. Yeah. I want to play a playing soldier. So I might as well be a soldier. Yeah. So, uh, when I decided that I wanted to join the military, it was actually after high school, this was in 96. And my mom was like, absolutely not. No way. <laughs> you know, she's like, I'll disown you. Like legit said that to me. I'll disown you. Of I'll course. Like, oh, okay. So her only wish was, look, she was like, go to college, finish college. After college, do whatever you want. Yeah. And I was like, okay. You know, so that's what I did. But then when I got to college and, you know, I was like, what am I? you know, I'm, I have a business admin major emphasis in marketing and a minor in math. And I was like, what am I going to do with this? Like, mm-hmm. this is not who I am, you know? So I still had that yearning to like be in the military. My father was in the military, my grandfather, like everybody in my father's side, they're all military studs, you know, like my grandfather's on this, he was a full bird colonel on this horse, like battled out, like battle horse, like <laughs> decked out. I was like, holy crap, that's awesome. And that's all I wanted to do, just like you. So eventually after college, I was like, you know what, guys, that's it, I'm joining the military. And they couldn't, they couldn't believe it. Like they were like shocked. And the, the, the thing that I got from everybody was like, we just left a war-torn country for you to come here and have a good life and you want to join the military. Mm. And I was like, yeah, but there's nothing going on. This was like 2000, mm-hmm. pre, you know, pre nine 11. I was like, there's nothing going on. Plus I'll do like three, four years. I'll get out. I'll go, I'll do something else. Yeah. You know? And, and they were like, no, absolutely not. So when they saw my determination, they started using these other tactics on me. Like my uncles were like, you're not, you're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. Which you know? makes you yeah. run they're, and you know, get they're, stronger. They're like, yeah, you got to boot camp for 13 weeks or whatever. They're like, oh, you're not going to make it. You'll be back in two weeks. You know, they're <laughs> just using like, everything they, they could to like give me this, give me the, but all I, all that did, all that negativity did was it fueled me, mm. you know? And, and when I was in boot camp and, and everything, and I was just like, and boot camp's kind of a joke, but like even back then, like as a young kid, you're, there's times where you're just like, man, did I, do I really want to be, you know, but like I was, I just use it as fuel and like that kind of mindset to use that negativity. Anytime to, someone told me I couldn't do anything stuck with me, even to this day, mm-hmm. you know, even when I was decided that I want to go to selection, mm-hmm. you know, and I got a first start in the, in the, in the, uh, third ID that's telling me, Oh, you're a Marine. You're gonna go to selection. Marines can't do army sit-ups and this and that. I was like, okay. You know, and like all these people telling me that, and he's only, he was only upset because I didn't want to go, because I wasn't going to go to Iraq with these guys because they're all on, de- deploying in two months, you know? Uh. And I was like, I didn't come here to deploy. I could have stayed in the Marine Corps to do that. I came here to go to SF. Mm-hmm. And so, but like th- that kind of, yeah, that's what, that's what fueled me. But like <laughs> to see my family be that way with me was, it's funny now when I think about it, you know, and now that they saw me make it and then 
do really well at it, you know, uh, of course they supported me, you know, but then when 9-11 happened, uh, that changed. Everybody was very scared, obviously, for all of us, you mm -hmm. know, because we were going to war at that point. But uh, Did you ever face discrimination in, in an American military where, you know, 90% of everybody's white, uh, depending on the MOS, but in combat arms, especially in special for forces, um, and then 9-11 happens and you're, you're Afghan, yeah, uh, American. What kind of discrimination did you face and how did you deal with that? Well, it's kind of crazy because, you know, I did go into the Marine Corps prior to 9-11. So mm -hmm. I was there for a good, I was there for over a year before 9-11. And in that year, I made good friends. I went to boot camp with these guys. After boot camp, the way the Marine Corps works is they take all the infantry guys, they bunch you up and they send mm -hmm. you to the School of Infantry and you spend the next two to three months there sucking it together. And so you build this camaraderie and you become really good friends. And then they take the way they, the way they you know, take you out of the school of entry, they take you in a, in a big dump and they just dump you into the, a battalion. Not a student, not a battalion, but a regiment, you know? And you guys serve together. And so, and then, so you're right there. Like wow. these guys that you spent like the last year with or whatever, you're now you're in the fleet together in the wow, same infantry, really cool. you're the same yeah. platoon, same company, possibly the same squad. And so all of us became like brothers, you know, and we went through that suck together. And although we didn't know a, a thing about the fleet, we had already, you know, built this camaraderie together. So, and then we did like another six months before 9-11 happened. And then once 9 and everybody, by then everybody knew me. They knew I was Afghan. They knew I was Muslim. Mm -hmm. And then when 9-11 happened, it was, uh, it kind of blew me away the way guys looked at me, you know, um, mm. once we found out that it was these Muslims that, hijacked these planes and ran them into the towers and this and that. And people started looking at me a little bit funny, like same guys and the same guys that I, your brothers. Yeah. That yeah. I spent the last year sucking, like, you know, doing all that stuff, you know, and for them to look at me that way, I, I felt completely betrayed mm. and I didn't know who to turn to. And granted, not all of them. In fact, not even most of them, but the ones that did were some close friends. Wow. And that's what kind of really got me, you know, so. How did you manage that? I mean, how do you, how do you manage, how do you manage excelling and succeeding in such a critical time in your life while dealing with stuff like that? It was tough. It was tough, man. Cause I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to go to. There wasn't any other Muslim in my unit. <laughs> there wasn't even any Middle Easterns in my unit mm -hmm. or Afghans. So I didn't know who to turn to. I actually went to the chaplain. And I was like, look, um, I'm not sure who else to go to. And so, but like, I talked to him and he actually like gave me some really good advice. You know, he's like, there is a, you don't have anything to prove to anybody but yourself. And like, you don't have to change anything. You don't have to change your dialogue. You don't have to change the way you act, the way you walk, the way you talk. You don't have to change anything. He's like, those guys that saw you for that year, they will see you again. He's like, don't, but don't compensate for their lack of understanding. Yeah. And just so do you, yeah, basically yeah. just do you. And so that's what I did. And, you know, for some of those guys, it, you know, I, I fought two of those dudes. Like we fought, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's what it came down to. But even, but when we ended up going to the invasion of Iraq at that point, um, a lot of that stuff was squashed, you know? So there was one dude that still didn't like me. He was a good old boy from Alabama. Sorry even though, again, good friend of mine prior to that. 
But it wasn't until we went to Iraq, um, to the invasion of Iraq, where those things changed. It was like our first firefight mm. when we were like literally laying next to each other, laying down fire. Wow. You wow. know? And after that firefight, we're all looking at each other like, holy shit, that just happened. You know, we all popped, popped our cherries. And uh, after that, nothing else really mattered. Yeah, because the layers of all the biases that you've developed over your lifetime, the things that you thought mattered yeah. when you're at a primitive state of war, where the only thing that matters is survival, yeah. then that, that all gets washed out. It all gets washed out because at that point, you understand what it means to uh, protect the guy to your left and right. Mm -hmm. You know, you get it right then and there. Um, and so, but then, I, but then I went through another internal kind of battle because, you know, I grew up Muslim and um, my grandfather was like my mentor when it came to like religion, culture and everything. And I would have questions for him all the time. Like, why do we pray five times a day? That's ridiculous. You know, he's like, you pray five times a day because it's a reminder to you. It's a discipline. It's not, it, it, that's not written in the Quran. That's not written in the Hadiths of Prophet Muhammad. That's, you know, that's, it's, it's a thing that we do. It's, it's, yes, he said it's man-made, you know, like no one's claiming that it's not, but it's a man-made rule a long time ago. Someone thought this was a good idea to keep us close to God. Mm. And he was like, and if you don't do it, fine. You know, I told him, I was like, why can't I just talk to God? Why do I have to go like wash up and then put my head down on the mat, you know? I was, and I was asking him all these hard questions, mm -hmm. but like he had a, just a good answer for everything. He actually had a very progressive kind of outlook on everything, you know? And he was like, look, if you want to talk to God, just talk to God. And I remember, I remember him, his speeches and his, some of his guidance growing up, but like what the, the, the second part, or the, the second big struggle that I had in Iraq, especially that invasion of Iraq was when I find myself shooting at other Muslims. You know, when in Islam, they say, if you kill one man, it's like you kill the humanity, you kill the entire human race. You know, if you save one man, you save the entire human race. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, a lot of people look at Islam and they're like, oh, this religion is evil, this and that. But I trust me when I say oh, I was the first one to, to criticize my own religion and ask all the hard questions. Why this? Why that? You know, and the way I got raised and the way I was taught the religion was that and I, the way I, I analyze my own religion is that it is, in, it is in fact a peaceful religion, but just like any peaceful religion, there is a fanatical side. There is a fanatical kind of uh, um, aspect to it. It can be either taken out of context or people can take it and purposely twist it out of context for their own purposes. Mm. And I think that, you know, that's something that caught on in the Middle East, the whole Wahhabism thing with, you know, it caught on and a lot of people... Uh, a lot of these younger guys, kind of like these Antifa and BLM people, they they just bought into it. And they're like, yeah, why is a foreign invader on my land? You know, that's that's a fucking infidel. You know, everybody just bought into it, just drunk that Kool-Aid up, man. You know, but um, sorry, and I keep kind of getting away from this. But the second biggest struggle was that I was sh now shooting at Muslims. Like, I possibly am killing these guys. And I was like, what am I doing, man? Like, and I look at these guys, like back then, these weren't like insurgents. They were Republican, you know, Iraqi Republican Guard in uniform. And these guys were doing what they signed up to do, mm -hmm. defend their country against us. You know, so if I, I put myself in their shoes plenty of times, like if somebody came to America, if some army came to America, what would I do? Mm. I would defend it. Yeah. You know, who's really the bad guy here? But it came down to, what it really came down to was really just a very selfish uh, um, need to survive and get back home. 
you know. Your own force protection. Yeah, but it wasn't just me, obviously, mm-hmm. right? I, I say it came down to like, well, I say it starts with me because I'm the one that's struggling with it, not these guys, not the guy to my left or right. You know, it was me. So it came down, it started with me. that I, I had to conquer myself in order to kind of open up to everything else. And so once I conquered that and I was like, you know what? It is what it is at this point. It's either me or him. And so that was, that's kind of how I went forward. And of course, I was going to do everything I can to protect these guys that I was with and come home. I, I you know, it's interesting. I, I talk about this every opportunity I do, and especially in the Middle East. And, you know, I spent, um, I did nine rotations to war, but a lot of those rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan, I learned to um, love um, all religions and all people based on the places that are in, because I, when you, when you stay in places long enough, even if it's partitioned and rotations, you start to mend and adapt and evolve in the culture and try to understand people. Yeah. I mean, that's what good green berets do. Uh, my Afghan rotation, uh, we spent nine months in Nuristan province. And I remember we had 144 Afghan soldiers and they didn't have a mosque to pray in. And the question was asked, what do we do to facilitate these guys' religious beliefs? And it was brought up. In fact, a, a teammate of mine who was killed later was a good buddy of mine, Ben. He's like, we need to build them a mosque. Mm. And so we built them a mosque, like brick by brick. I mean, right. we built it side by side with them and brick by brick. We painted that mosque. And they, they asked me and some of the guys to come in um, and pray. And, and I thought it was significant. Um, and we did that. And then I've always been asked the question like, hey, well, how could you operate with Muslims? Like, it's bad. And, and then it made me, it, it fascinated me so much that I started studying Islam and studying the correlations between the Christian religion and the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And even that Old Testament being literally written by the Prophet Muhammad's own words about Jesus, about Moses. And you realize <laughs> that it's the, it could be different paths to the same God. Yeah. And then you, when I, I was fascinated to learn about the prophet Muhammad and how he was outcasted from his own people because he believed in a, a single God. Right. Where he, he even hid in a, a Catholic church in Ethiopia um, because he didn't want to get killed by his own people because he was professing of one God. Right. And, and, and I'm like, man, my mind was blown. And, you know, and I've had people DM me and, and, and tell me how bad they felt for thinking or even acting in some instances in war about how, how bad Muslims were when they painted an entire, an entire religion. Right. Um, but that's one thing to gain perspective because I experienced side by side. It's another thing to live it, right? It's another thing to actually be yeah. that. Uh, and honestly, yeah. So there was something that I hid for a while. Like, you know, even even after 9-11, people that didn't know me, you know, if they, if they assumed I was Mexican or something like that or Hawaiian, I let them roll with it. You just went with it. Yeah. Cause I didn't feel like sitting there and explaining all the time. Yeah. It was so, it was so, I was so exhausted, man. You know, that really took a lot of me out of me after nine 11 to deal with all that, you know? And so even in the special forces, man, when I got to fifth group, um, 
you know, when guys learned that I was Afghan and then Muslim, you know, some of those guys did look at me weird, man. They looked at me funny, you know, and uh, which really disappointed me because in special forces, you know, we are, you know, it comes to special operations, Green Berets are the most cultured guys. You know, we have the biggest cultural understanding of our AO, you know, and, and we understand how to truly win those hearts and minds. And in and, and, and doing that, we do that through living with them, working with them, fighting with them, eating, sleeping, drinking with them, right? And so, but like for these guys to come back after these deployments, and these are not like brand new guys, you know, these are like seasoned guys with a few deployments, but the, for them to come back, having worked with the same people, the same religion, and then to look at me that way, you know, was disappointing. So at that point, though, you know, I'm older. I'm not going to take it personal. Hey, whatever, man. You don't like Muslims or whatever. Cool. I, don't, I really don't give a shit at this point. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. I mean, I hid it for a while, but then I was like, why am I hiding this, man? You know, it's just dumb. So yeah, the, the, the interesting thing, like in fifth, fifth Special Forces group, their area of responsibility, at least at the time, was the Middle East. Yeah. Right. So. Fifth group, and I, and I know this specifically from the the commanders and extremist force version of it, B two three, which is the company that I was in, and A one five, we were rotating in and out of these war zones constantly, right. working side by side, um, and then flexing over to Afghanistan at the same time that Iraq, and so it was very busy. That the operations tempo was very busy, but the first time I realized that the system, the institution, didn't really have it together was when they designated me a Korean guy, right? I'm, I'm half Korean, but I can read and write Korean. They sent me to learn French, mm. to go to third special forces group to be deployed in Iraq. <laughs> and I'm like a Korean French speaking war fighting dude in Iraq. They, like I realized that they weren't capitalizing on the ethnicity and the culture because it wasn't even on the questionnaire. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, Instead, like, you know, when I was a team sergeant, if I had a guy who was like you, you were the asset because you potentially spoke the language. Right. You understood the culture. And even most importantly, uh, in an operational sense, you looked apart. Right. Right. Low vis operations. You could literally do low vis operations right. with you um, versus, uh, you know, fighting the institution and obviously the people who don't get it, which I've seen, too. I've seen the ignorance that's the world, but specifically in our backgrounds and special operations, but you, you move past that right. and, and you, and you did, did what you had to do. How was your overall experience looking at it in hindsight now and in, in the past, what would you, what would you summarize as your overall experience of the military? Man, I love it. Uh, there isn't a day that doesn't go by that I don't miss it. Um, you know, I love the time I did in the Marine Corps as an infantry guy, you know, uh, those deployments to Iraq, the big one to Fallujah for Operation Phantom Fury, to be there as a squad leader and to be a part of that was insane. It was, uh, it really set me up for what I wanted to do next. You know, we were, we had SEAL team, we had Chris Kyle's team with us in Fallujah. And, um, you know, to have his team and he was out doing his thing and his team was actually with us. I had, I had half that team. My buddy Romero had the other half, you know, and, and, and then to come away from that deployment, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. You know, as Marine Corps, as Marines, we kind of look up to SEALs. But I really did my kind of research on where I wanted to go. Did I want to travel for SEALs or SF or what? I was like, dude, I'm definitely going SF, you know, just based off my own research and, and their scope of work, you know. Uh, and then my time in SF was just amazing, dude. I loved it. 
you know, from the, from the very get go, they knew how to utilize me. Um, they found like when I got to, in fact, my very first team was a one five. And when I got there, I remember Sergeant Major Betts was, uh, he was like, you're Afghan. I was like, yeah, Roger, that's our major. And he's like, you were a squalier in Fallujah? Roger, that's our major. He's like, I'm sending you to 815. Like, okay. Nice. I don't know what that Which is. Which is rare. If you guys was, don't know, that's rare. Yeah, yeah, a brand new guy to go to 815 yeah. was very rare. Um, and so when I when I got, I didn't know what 815 was. You know, I was like, Where? I don't know what that is. But then to do that time with them and then go to a regular team and really get to see how a regular ODA works, you know, and then I got pushed down the human route. And I like, and I kept getting pushed down a human route. And then I got to go on all these really cool kind of IA tasking, like, you know, missions with some different agencies. I mean, dude, there isn't a day that goes, that goes by that I don't miss it. And I don't wish that I could go back and get back into it. And that's why when I left fifth group, you know, I left fifth group for personal reasons. In fact, just, I'll just say, I was trying to save my marriage, you know, but when I left fifth group, I was like, I just can't leave. So I, I went to 19th group and I, I was like, look, I, I want to help, like utilize me, you know? And uh, before I left fifth group, I taught a Safawik, you know, I was a Safawik instructor for a few years. And I was like, dude, I, utilize me however you guys want, right? I'm here to help. The only thing I can't really do now at this point is deploy because I got too many obligations outside and, uh, and don't, don't offer me any schools because I'm schooled out, mm-hmm. you know, but they were trying to, they were trying to promote me to E8 and give me a team. And I was like, I can't, like, I'm, I'm doing that for your own benefit because I, not that I'm not capable, but I'm just too busy. Like I would fail the team. I would fail you guys. I would fail myself. So, but I was like, just, you know, let me help out wherever I can, you know, and that's what I've been doing since I got to 19th group. Uh, but you know, when I talk to my buddies at fifth group and I see what they're doing and everything, man, I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I try to vicariously live those days on my, on my own Instagram. You know, when I go up and train with Mike knockout lights and those guys and we kid up and it's like, yeah, it was, it was fun, you know. <laughs> it <laughs> feels was, good to put it on, though. It feels good to put it on. It feels good to train, you know, and we're not doing silly stuff. Like, we're getting use out of it, you know, and, and we don't need to do any of these high-speed social media videos. But we're doing it because, you know, Mike is the same same as I. Like, the guy is, the guy's retired SWAT, and he misses it, you know. And so, we, you know, and, and so that's what we do. But, man, if I if, if Fifth Group called me today and they're like, hey, we want you back, I'd probably say yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's love. That's yeah. love there. Um, let's talk about what's going on right now. And I, I want to get, because you have an extensive military background that ties into you being very good at training and communicating that training to civilians, law enforcement, military, um, because you're an expert trainer. I mean, that's what we we do as Green Berets, but you also have the experience to back it up. And you live in this industry. We, we have similar backgrounds. We have similar philosophies on our training and approaches. And you have an industry full of characters. The only way I could, the only way I could paint it is essentially looking at these people as emulators who are just pretending. Mm. What they call them LARPers is sure. the, I guess that's the slang term. But, but literally role-playing something that we were trying to build businesses, grow followings, the list goes on. I remember like when I first got in the space, wanting to be on board with supporting everybody. But I remember defining the limitations in myself. Being a, a former special forces sergeant major, I was like, 
here's my SOP. Here's what I, what I won't accept. And I think the line was like, stay in your lane. It was like, stay in your lane. If, if, you, if you're teaching something and you stay in your lane, that's completely fine. Because there are applications, especially in technical gun handling or even practical shooting, that people should stay in their lane. But then you see multiple people crossing in or out of their lane trying to be gunfighters right. when, they, when they shouldn't be. And you, you have always been, in fact, I've looked up to you in that way because it took me some time to get on that bandwagon. And then I realized the entire time you were in the right. Um, and I should have been on that bandwagon earlier. Um, but you've always been an advocate of laying out, if you don't have the experience and you're just pretending, then you're an emulator. You're not real. Yeah, so I think that, I think that you know, social media is uh, it's it's uh, it's such a diverse arena of people. I feel like it's also very unregulated, where guys like you and I, if we are the tactical expert experts, if we are the, uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't call us professional shooters because that's not a profession, but we know how to shoot, and we know how to apply tactics, right? And we and we know about gear and and what works and what doesn't. But I think that I wish that it could almost be regulated in a sense where guys like you and I and others could come out and really be like, look, man, if you want to do this, then seek some real training from somebody that is credible mm. and then and then go on your journey with it. Like, but I think where the problem I have is like I have no problem with guys wanting to do really cool social media videos, you know, the quick draws and and the, the super high-speed manipulations and all the gear and the nods. Dude, America, man, <laughs> do it up. You know what I mean? But there's nothing wrong with that. But the moment I have a problem with it is that when you try to sell, your, sell, your, uh, sell yourself as an expert now in, in this so-called aspect of it because you have so many followers or because you have so much of that gear or because you have so many guns. And I think that... When people, when their social media grows to a point where they get questions asked of them, because, you know, I, I can only assume that if I came onto Instagram today for the first time and I saw all these people with cool videos, I would ask these guys mm -hmm. the same questions. Thinking they're, being asked, they're the expert. Thinking that they're the experts. Why? Because one, their content looks cool and it, it looks right to me, you know, so let me just ask them. And I think that when they get asked these questions so many times, they feel almost obligated to now... Mm put it in a way where it's coming from them, you know? Like they almost don't wanna say, well, look, man, I'm just a guy that shoots. If you really want the, the correct answer or the, learn how to do this correctly, go, go to one of these professionals here. And it, it goes to their heads, man, it goes to their heads. And uh, for some of these people that are trying to run a business as well, it's just a perception that they're trying to sell. And what it really comes down to for some of these kids is that it, it, it comes down to validation. They really want to be validated. You know, they are, they're doing everything they can. They're, they're trying to leech on the people to the experts. They're trying to befriend people like, hey, man, let me come shoot with you. Let me or come to my place and shoot with me. Let's do some content together. And they're like, well, look who came to my place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And look who I shot with. And that you guys should now respect me because I shot with my Glover, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and and that, that's what they want. They want validation. But they're never going to get it. And like, you know, guys like you and I understand why they're never going to get it. Mm -hmm. 
And they want it so badly from guys like you and I. Mm -hmm. And that's, but they're never going to get it. And so if you want to LARP for the rest of your life, then go ahead. If you want to sit there and say that you're the savior of the two-way community and you want to sell that perception, go ahead. If you want to, if you want to pretend like you're the gun God because you're fast to something or whatever, go ahead, man. The guys that matter see right through it. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I, I have to think that these people, um, cause it's weird. It's some of them are able-bodied. Like they have all the time in the world. Most of them are young. Yeah. Like you could literally do that. I mean, it would just require you to make a change and stop selling and start doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted to get your perspective on that. Cause I, I, I think it's important that like how you frame professionals, professionalize and hold sacred, especially tactics that are potentially affecting people's lives in a, a positive or potentially negative way with liability. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I, when the, when dudes do cartwheels and kiss guns and do that kind of stuff, I'm like, that person's never seen anybody die in combat, right? No. That person's never been in a gunfight in fear of their life. Yeah. You know, that person's never served something bigger than themselves. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to be self-serving in this context, No, but I'll, and I'll say, I'll yeah. say one more thing on that is I think that, you know, I think that the level of proficiency and the level of knowledge that guys like you and I hold, we've earned that, you know, we put our time in to earn that, you know, we, we sweat, we, you know, we sweat, we shed sweat and blood and tears to earn that knowledge, earn that experience and that expertise. And it's, it's just as sacred as is that long tab that's on our shoulder, that special forces tab, that ranger tab, you know, it's just that trident. It's just as special as that. That level of expertise is earned. So when you try to, when you try to say that you're an expert in this, or you try to sell that perception that you're an expert, you might as well throw a long tab on your shoulder at that point mm -hmm. and try to say that you also earned that title, you know, mm -hmm. because that's what you're claiming. Yeah, you're manufacturing fantasy. You're yeah. just making stuff up. Yeah. And that's, that's what it is. I called one of these kids. I said it was like Rob Diedrich's fantasy factory. I was like, it's just your own little playground. But go ahead, man. Do it up, you know. <laughs> so Narnia, man. You can do whatever you want in Narnia. Yeah. Ha have at it. Yeah. Let, let's let's uh, transition to this Antifa BLM protest violence across the United States because for American contingency, it's important you guys tune in to the advice and, and pers perspective because you have an operational sense. You have an operational mind. When you look at this taking place in our country, what are you, what's going through your head? What, what, what are you perceiving? And then what are you, what are your, some of your recommendations to people when, when looking at this kind of stuff? Well, to me, I think, uh, what, what really kind of blows my mind and I still cannot grasp is how people, uh, how people lack the, the ability or the willingness to use analytical thinking when really looking at some of these events that uh, have sparked all this. You know, if we're talking about people like Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, um, um, shoot, all the names blend in at this point. Um, I forget the other kid's name. Um, but like those type of incidents, uh, those type of events, you know, when you look at it, when you really take the facts into consideration, and you look at it, not from the left, not from the right, not from the good guy or the bad guy, but when you look at all the data that's being presented, whether that's in video form, whether that's in audio form or, or, or actual, you know, 
facts that have been presented on, a, on some kind of sheet or document. I don't understand how you cannot understand why that happened. And I, and I really don't understand why you feel like that, like, it, like it was anything other than, uh, unjust or, or that it was premeditated or that that was the intention from the get go. I really don't, it, it just blows my mind. So, you know, I'm not going to go down, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole of what I think is like kind of driving all this, but I think that for the people on the ground, these kids are, uh, these kids don't, they just don't take the time to do that, um, to really look at that and study. And, and if, if you really give a shit, then just take, put, do some due diligence and look at that, mm. you know, and come up with your own thoughts. Don't let your friends around you persuade you. Don't let them influence you. Don't let them peer pressure you. But I think for a lot of these kids also, especially black kids at this point, I feel like they're in a bad place because if all my buddies are black and I grew up in a black neighborhood and all of them are supporting BLM and I'm the one that's critically thinking, analytically thinking, and I'm like, hey, hang on a second, guys, this doesn't make sense. I can only imagine how those other kids would treat him. So at that point, it's peer pressure. He's almost forced. And you see how some of these black conservatives on TV, some of the more known black conservatives, the Hodge twins, the uh, Candace Owens, uh, the you know Black Hulk, like all these guys, like Officer Tatum, all these people that are actually using analytical thinking, and they're like, hang on, you know, you see the way they're being looked at and treated by the black community or even the white community at this point, because BLM is just we don't know, you know, BLM is what it should have been in the very first place, everybody together, mm -hmm. you know, but. Um, so it, that's, it's kind of hard for me. That that's, I think there's, those are the two big things, a lack of that kind of analytical thinking uh, and outlook and also the peer pressure from their own communities, like even celebrities. You know, I just talked to my cousin Jay about this and he's in, the, he's in Hollywood, he's an actor and he's in a tough spot because, you know, and I'm not going to dime him out right now, but like he feels a certain way. He feels a certain way about certain things, but he's afraid that if he speaks up that a lot of, his community, acting community, is going to look at him like, "Oh, you're, you're a traitor. How can you feel that way?" Mm. You yeah, know, that's a whole industry. I, I just saw The Rock came out supporting Biden, um, and he caught man. I couldn't believe. <laughs> I think there's a hundred thousand plus comments yeah. of people just going, "What? I, I know what The Rock is cooking. Like I could smell The Rock is cooking now, and it's and it's BS, right? Oh, it's yeah, like yeah. people are just losing it on him." And it sounds like, and I, and I, like you said, it's, and which is important, like critically analyze what's taking place. And if you hear his message, it's very, it seems very manufactured, very scripted. It's very scripted. Yeah. And it almost feels like he got paid, right? It feels yeah. like an endorsement that he got paid and people are like, well, you must've got paid. And, and what I don't realize or, um, is all this stuff has been going on for years, it's been building up. Absolutely. And, and because of COVID, because of social dysfunction, we're getting to a place now where shit's floating, right? We, we, it's coming to the surface. Right. And it's hard to hide that. But I've never seen so much openly toxic behavior with no care about a, re, a, a recourse, right? right. No, no consideration for recourse. Because the media just is going to vomit it out. And it doesn't care who says anything about it. It's going to continue to do what it does. Um, celebrities are going to do the same. Like I saw the support of 
Jamie Foxx and Jack Black and all these guys, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, thumbs up emoji, yeah, support button. Right. I'm like, really, guys? Yeah. Really? Like, just look at it critically. <laughs> Joe Biden is not the right person to run a McDonald's. So he's not going to be the right person to run a country. Right. I and, think, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, when it comes to people like The Rock, people like Jamie Foxx and these actors, uh, you know, A-list, a Z-list, you know, I think because they're, they're because that, that community or that industry is their lifeline, uh, because what comes out of that is fame, mm. uh, money, and, and um, well, recognition, but also influence, right? So those things are why actors act. They, yes, they, they act because they love, I'm assuming they love the art of acting, but everybody wants to make it big. Everybody wants to be that next action hero in a big, in some big Michael Bay movie, right? Uh, you know, and so with that comes money, power, influence, and like opportunities, you know? And so when I look at The Rock, I'm just like, dude, you are the highest paid actor in the world probably at this point. You make movies every like three, four months, you know? And you're probably getting like a, you're probably like a 40, $50 million movie, movie guy, you know? So like, I don't know, I don't know if Biden has enough money to pay this guy. You know, to for him to get that endor endorsement. I think what's really kind of driving that endorsement is the fear that if he doesn't, that uh, he's going to lose some opportunities. Mm -hmm. He's going to lose the opportunities to make more money. He's going to lose mm -hmm. the opportunities to be in more movies. You know, he might get blacklisted. Who knows? But I think that w the strategy that the left is using is is a is a it goes from, it comes from social media. If you look at any company that wants to get their name and brand out there, what are they going to do? They're going to find people that kind of fit their genre and they're going to turn them into influencers. Mm -hmm. Hey man, I'll send you some free t-shirts. Give me some free posts, right? Uh, or I'll give you some free product. I'll here, I'll pay you a stipend every month, thousand bucks, you know, for a year, do this. And they're, they're using the same strategy. So now they're taking like these big, huge stars, Cardi B, you know, The Rock, whoever else. And they're like, we want you guys to be our brand ambassadors, our influencers for the left. Mm. And I really don't know what they're getting out of it, but I can only assume what they what they may lose on, lose out on if they don't. You know? That totally makes sense. I mean, The Rock's got 199 million followers. He probably lost like 300,000 last night and they didn't put a dent in it. Yeah, someone told, me that he, someone told me that after that video, he lost like 20 million. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. Way off, Samsonite. Man, <laughs> 20 million. Yeah, yeah. That's, I couldn't believe the overwhelming response. Um, well, you know, outside of the, pol the political divisiveness of everything and everything that's going on in politics, you, you almost can't have a conversation about it, about what's going on without diving into politics a little bit. Um, what do you think is going to, what do you think this stuff that's happening right now is going to evolve into in the near, which is like November election cycle? And then uh, the, the far future, like next year, what do you, you think is going to happen in the timeline? Yeah, you know, I, I thought I used to be able to uh, kind of foresee things, you know. I thought that if I was, you know, taking a look at this in a, from an operations standpoint and I was doing like MDMP, mission planning, and I was like looking at this, I was like, what could possibly come out? from these actions. But I think that here in 2020, so many curveballs have been thrown at us mm. that even from like, I don't know what's gonna happen, man. It's so crazy. Like I, I have a very strong feeling that Trump's gonna win. 
Uh, I just don't see it not happening. In fact, uh, what the, like the first debates tonight, I think it is. I can't wait yeah. to get home and watch this <laughs> yeah. debate. Yeah. So that one's happening tonight and we, we know what's going to happen. It's going to be a clown show. You know, <laughs> I feel like, like Biden's actually going to physically fight Trump. Like he's going to want to yeah. physically hit yeah. him or, or he's going to walk out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's going, yeah. He's going to do something crazy. <laughs> Something's going to, he's going to faint, but like, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, Trump's going to win in, in this election and Either the powers that be that kind of the handlers for BLM Antifa are going to escalate mm. and really upscale uh, or everything's going to kind of die down. Mm. Right. Um, so it's really just kind of like what these these uh, these elitists want to do with this whole thing, you know, and I know that's kind of going down that rabbit hole a little bit. But I, I, it's at this point, I don't think it, it's not a conspiracy theory anymore. You know, if we, if we follow the money, we see where the money's going. We see who's who's in charge of the money. And you're ousting yourself. So you can't really call it a conspiracy theory anymore. So either they're going to escalate things and Antifa is going to escalate operations and uh, they're going to go from pot shots to pipe bombs and straight up ambushes and like guerrilla style warfare um, or, or it's going to die down, you know, and so we'll see. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously hoping that it all dies down. I'm hoping that they're just like, well, he's here for four more years. Like, there's no need to completely destroy America because it's really not. What are you accomplishing at that point? Yeah. You know, if you really, unless you really want to just destroy the infrastructure of this country, then yeah, keep it up, man. But what's going to happen if you do keep it up is like guys like us who are utterly sitting by and minding our own business at some point are going to, you know, uh, we're going to put, um, you know, we're going to put our hat on and we're going to start doing work. Yeah, we have to, right? You have I mean, what's our limitation in it? You know, how, yeah. how, how long can we go before we let it burn to the yeah. ground? And you know what's crazy, man, is that I, I've been getting a lot, of, a lot more DMs recently from guys that are saying, dude, I love what you're saying. I support you. But, like, at what point do we step up? At what point do we stop sitting and just watching? Like, how, how much has to get destroyed? How many people have to die, mm. you know, before we actually stand up and say enough is enough? And it's so hard for me to answer that question. Yeah. You know, I, I don't even know. Like, I don't want to sit this. I don't want to sit here and tell this guy, like, no, man, like, get your kid ready and stuff like that. Yeah. But at the same time, the lifestyle that we live is a lifestyle of preparedness. You know, we always, we've always prepared for the worst and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just hope that I just hope that things go back to normal once once Trump is back in office uh, or wins this next election and America goes back to what it was, man. But if you look at the tradition, if you look at the, the trend in history, just in the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, it's, it, that's not the, that's not the way it's probably going to go. Yeah. It's that's looking it. not good. No, it's not looking w good. What would you do for like pro tips and recommendations for, for people who are just normal people who are like watching this and they're like, you know, what do I do? What, what can I do to get better prepared? What can I do right now? to make a difference, to make a change, to, to get ready? Is there anything that you would offer in advice, like literal advice and maybe anything in mindset? Or I love talking about this stuff, man. This lifestyle, uh, this, I love this lifestyle, like just being prepared, you know. Obviously, it starts with mindset, you know. Um, I mean, when I put mindset changes everything on one of my T-shirts, like I meant that, you know. Like it's your mindset that changes everything in your life. It's, it, you know, so like it does start That's with your t-shirt says that. Yeah. My, oh, I need to get one of them. Yeah, okay. Mindset changes everything. 
Yeah. That's mind. awesome. Yeah. So, but I'll get you one of those for sure, man. But I think obviously it starts with mindset because the mind drives the body. And so I think that, and then off that obviously is one, just basic situational awareness, you know, cause we never know when this crazy stuff happens. We don't like, it just, just pops off wherever now, you know? And so just your own situational awareness, uh, you know, just understanding your, your surroundings, your pattern of life, your fives and 25s, like, and, but also passing that on to your family, you know, like I tell people, you know, do you have a plan for if somebody breaks in your house during the day? What's the plan? You know, what if it's, what if you're home with your family? What's the plan? What if it's just your wife? What's the plan? What do you have a plan for your, for your family? uh, If somebody breaks your house or breaks your door down at night, you know, do you have, What's your primary? What's your alternate contingency emergency? Like, do you have a pace plan for that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, we can get into the weeds on all that, but your own situational awareness is, is your, your own safety comes first. And then obviously if you're, if you're a father and a mother, the, the safety of your children, you know, maybe the safety of your coworkers at your workplace, understanding the culture of an environment so that when you understand the culture of an environment, you understand the abnormalities within that environment, mm. you know, and those abnormalities usually are threat indicators or what potentially could be a threat indicator. Mm. You know, for example, every location has its own culture, a gas station. Look at what happens in a gas station. Mm. People come in, they pump gas, they go in, they buy something, you know, and like if so that's the culture of that environment, movie theater, Walmarts, wherever, school, you know, your workplace, anything. And then understanding what a threat indicator looks like, you know, um, and then, man, we can go into this for so much. Well, like, I want you to do that. That that situation awareness spill is going to be one of the first. Uh, Kyle was going to be doing content for American Contingency, and one of the first things that I was going to have you do is the the situation awareness thing because that perspective of kind of how we identified it in special operations of potential threats that were outside the pattern, like right. you said, abnormalities is so critical to understand how to implement in real life in real time. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll get in the weeds on that because that, that's so important to talk yeah. about. Yeah, and then, you know, honestly, there's we can go into bug out bags and go bags, you know, like a, a go bag for uh, a get the fuck out of Dodge is different from a go bag for a fire that's mm-hmm. about to burn your house down, mm-hmm. you know? Like, my, like I should have all my valuables, photo albums and stuff in one go bag, and, you know, and then I should have, like, a no shit go bag for survival, you know? Maybe one in my house, maybe one in my truck, a smaller one or something like that. That plus, you know, what, what is your, you know, what, what kind of network do you have that you're going to fall back on? Mm. You know, if you have to get out of your town, where are you going to go? You know, whose house are you going to go to? Or do they know that you're coming? Mm. You know, do you guys have any kind of near or far recognition or do you have any kind of uh, pace plan set in place? Like how many routes do you have to that person's place? What if he is not available? What's your alternate location that you're going to? Um, so those type of things are, you know, and I'm obviously just, you know, I'm like scraping the, the tip of the, yeah, sword. we're just spitballing now. Yeah. So, there's so many but things. there's, there's so many things. And so for your average citizen, since you asked that question, situational awareness, pattern of life, abnormalities, threat indicators, and then, uh, most importantly, don't be so oblivious like in your own world, mm. you know, like so many people are glued to this and not. Glued I, to I use the Starbucks analogy a lot. Like when you next time you walk into a Starbucks, pay attention to how many people actually look up at you, come out of their laptops, come out of their phones and look and see who actually just came through the door. Mm. 
Because I guarantee uh, about, uh, about three-quarter of them would not mm-hmm. look up at you. So if I came through that door with a machete, three-quarters of those people have no idea, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's that, it's, so that's really like the hindrance of the, today's world with electronics is that uh, we're, we're glued to our phones, we're glued to our laptops, we're glued to our computers, but we're also, we're also so involved with sometimes with conversation within ourselves that we are now oblivious to what's happening. Mm. You know, like if you're, you and I are sitting at a table at a, at a restaurant and we're so like having, we're having such a great conversation that we are just like everything else around us is a blur, mm. you know, or like you're, you're so busy with your kids cause they're such little turds that yeah. they're just like taking up your time and your, all of your attention span. And all of a sudden you become a soft target because now you lost spatial awareness or situational mm. awareness. So I'm actually, so for two alpha training group, we are actually present, putting together a, uh, an online seminar for situational awareness. Really cool. Yeah. So we well, let's talk to- about that. Cause you have, you have a training company you're adapting even under the current circumstances to continue to educate people. What are some of the things that you're doing training wise and, and what are the kind of the, the links where people could go to be able to find that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, two upper training group is our, is my firearms, uh, and tactics company, if you want to call it that in. And we do teach an array of curriculum. I mean, uh, you know, most of the curriculum that I, I teach with two alpha training group really comes from my time at Safawik, you know? Mm-hmm. And so what's the point of reinventing the wheel? Obviously there's certain things and techniques and, and stuff that I cannot teach people obviously. And, uh, and, and so, but I, I find a way to take the principles out of that and apply mm-hmm. them and kind of tweak them. And so make, but we, you know, we teach everything from pistol. Uh, and when I say like pistol fundamentals, it's like, this is a, a special operations level pistol fundamentals, not your local NRA instructor, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, and then to advanced, very dynamic type of movements, because obviously, you know, who, who stands in a firefight shoots at each other standing still. So movement is, is definitely important. Low light. I mean, we just did a two day low light pistol class in, in uh, at California Tactical Academy. Those are always fun. People always love those because mm. they don't know. They don't know how the fight changes when all of a sudden they have to use a handheld or a weapons mounted light. You yeah. Know? and like light projection and the different types of lights and how many lumens is too many lumens, you know, but we, we, and then lately the last year I've been really focusing on putting together a CQB curriculum, not for, not just for two to four men, but we also have a lone operator, like one man CQB course. Really cool. And, uh, and so we thought that that would be something that would be, uh, valuable to people, the people who train together, you know, if you and I trained all the time together and we went to this two to four man class, you know, God forbid we have to find ourselves in that situation, but at least we know how to operate as two people, you yeah. know, and clearing structures and stuff like that. Uh, and we, and we decided to same thing with loan man or loan operator, one man CQB. And then we also throw in some tactical scenarios, active shooter, uh, tactical egress and some other ones. And we, and the reason that's been so successful is because we took live fire out of it and we went to airsoft. Smart. Um, yeah. And reduce so, liability, but increase training. Exactly. And also reduce stress so that people can actually pay attention. They're not worried about loud bangs and people getting flagged and shooting each other. Not that we allow people to flag each other with airsoft weapons, but still, you know, that bang is a stressor. So we took the stressors out of it and everything else is just self-induced, but we, we gave them airsoft and now we can also introduce force on force and some role players and Man, it's, it's been really good. It's been Where can really people good. go to find that training? What's the links and stuff for that? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> it's funny because I had two alpha training group. So twoalphatraininggroup.com was up and running up until two months ago where our payment processor 
became uh, or was very anti-gun and two-way, and they mm -hmm. shut us down. Oh wow! So we just we just got another payment processor who's actually very pro two-way. Yeah. Uh, so the site will be back up. It is, it, but even now, you can go on to twoalphatraininggroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. And so when it's up, you'll see the newsletter. Hey, we're up and live, and then awesome. all the courses will be on there for now. Uh, we're utilizing our social media platforms, uh, two alpha, two alpha training group, Instagram, my Instagram, Kawa underscore, M, under, excuse me, Kawa underscore M underscore official. Uh, and we just, we put them, we make them a post or we put them in the caption and, uh, that's where you can find a schedule. So apologies for that. But, but yeah, I mean, we've, we're, we're teaching a lot, man. Uh, just like you guys, um, we're all over the country. In fact, next weekend I'm going to Miami to do a two to four man CQB course awesome. out there. Uh, at uh, Trade tra Tradecraft, the next month I'll be at Sawmill where you were. Where you really guys cool, were. man. That's yeah. a great range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're doing a load operator yeah. out there. Awesome, man. Well, you know, I, I want you guys to look forward to the opportunities that um, Kyle has allowed us to access because he's going to be providing content for you guys specifically. I think we'll start out with situational awareness, um, but he flew in here just to have the opportunity to talk to you guys and engage with you guys. And, you know, when we talk about American contingency and everything it's about, it's not the Mike Glover show. In fact, I always want you guys to look at me as being the conduit and the access to guys like him who are subject matter experts who offer the training solutions, who offer the right advice and the right solutions versus this is just my show. Um, uh, one, I want to say thank you for coming out, man, and taking the time because we had this conversation last week and yeah. here you are. Yeah. And, you know, he he called me and said, hey, he wants to get better, more involved and, and better involved in what we have going on. And the fact that you're executing, man, I, I knew you'd be a man of your word. And the fact that you're, you're part of this is really important to me. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you, first of all, for having us here. Obviously, this was great, man. We've been, you and I talked about this almost a year ago, yeah. you know, trying to get this, trying to get this done. But it is what it is. I think the timing is perfect, obviously, with American contingency being stood up. And as soon as I saw you stand that up and I saw kind of what your mission statement was, I was like, why wouldn't I want to be a part of this? I mean, this is pretty much what I'm talking about anyway. Awesome, man. You know, so I appreciate the opportunity to also be part of American Contingency. Uh, and I've gotten already so much love from the AMCON members. Uh, and even awesome. like SoCal, NorCal, like all of them have been hitting me up. Obviously, we're on Discord and stuff, but like they're hitting me up like this and that. So... Uh, you know, it's going to be good, man. There's some good stuff coming for all the AMCON members. There's some good stuff coming for you guys in general. Uh, and then, dude, the, the, the future's bright, man. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great, man. Yeah. Thank you so much, man, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. Thanks, guys. Peace out. Take care.